Section 2 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marwak. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 27. Bacteria. Part 2. A Long Controversy. A controversy thus arose which has continued into our own times, and has led to very important knowledge as to the conditions necessary for the life of the infusory animalcules, and also as to the many different kinds included under that name, as well as to the means of keeping liquids containing organic matters, such as infusions or solid vegetable and animal substances, altogether protected from the access of infusory animalcules. Liquids so treated are said to be sterilized. In order to study the question as to the existence of infusoria, or their reproductive germs as dust in the air, it was necessary to sterilize an infusion, such as that of hay or roots, fruits or flesh, which was to be used, like the raw meat in Reddy's experiment, to feed or cultivate the air-carried germs should they gain access. The experimenter had to begin by preparing an uninfected culture fluid which, though free from living infusoria, should yet be capable of affording them nourishment, should they gain access to it. It was agreed, as Spallanzani had declared, that by heating an infusion of any kind to the temperature of boiling water, and keeping it at that temperature for five minutes, all animalcules or their germs already living in the infusion could be, with rare exceptions, killed. The exceptions were, it was found at a later date by Ferdinand Cohn, 1870, due to the existence in some cases of a hard-dried condition of those animalcules called bacteria, or their reproductive spores. These resisting spores were destroyed either by an exposure of three hours to the boiling temperature, or by soaking in warm water for some hours before the exposure to the temperature of boiling water. Spallanzani's conclusion that the appearance of animalcules in such boiled infusions could only be accounted for by the access of air-carried germs to the infusion after it had been boiled was met by his opponents with another suggestion. They suggested that the abiogenesis or spontaneous generation of animalcules depended on a special chemically active condition of the air present in the flasks, which when closed were filled half with liquid and half with atmospheric air. It was supposed that the heating of this air to a high temperature and its consequent rarefaction before the closure of the flask, did not act merely by destroying germs floating in it, but destroyed its power of chemical action on the organic infusion. But it was not shown by any well-devised experiment that air, when freed of organic germs before admission to the sterilized fluid in the flask by filtration through cotton wool, possessed nevertheless this vivifying quality and it was shown that the admission of unfiltered air to the flask resulted in the production of animalcules in the infusion. This fact was in accordance with the supposition of Spallanzani, that the unfiltered air brought with it, in the form of dust, the actual living though incompletely desiccated animalcules, or their reproductive germs. These were excluded when filtration was used, just as Reddy's blowflies were excluded from access to the meat, which he placed under covers of wire netting. In the early years of the 19th century, the controversy of opinion concerning spontaneous generation continued without any experimental decision, until, in 1837, Theodore Schwann, 
who was the author of the cell theory of organic structure and function, also the discoverer of pepsin, the digestive ferment of the stomach, and the first to apply the experimental methods of the physicist to the investigation of the animal machine, made some well-contrived decisive experiments, confirmatory of Spallanzani's conclusion. Schwann boiled his experimental fusion in a flask with a long tube-like horizontal neck. He did not close the neck, but kept it heated by a flame so that no living particle could pass and enter the flask when air was drawn in by the cooling of the flask. The infusion in the flask remained sterile for many weeks, in fact, so long as the neck was kept nearly red-hot by the flame. But when the flame was removed and unheated air allowed to enter the flask, the infusion became turbid and swarmed with infusoria, since their germs were no longer destroyed on their way inward through the heated portion of the neck. Schwann completed his experimental inquiry by demonstrating by chemical analysis that the atmospheric air, after passing the heated neck of the flask, contained as much free oxygen gas as does normal atmospheric air, and that it was capable of supplying the respiratory needs of frogs, which he found lived healthily in a chamber supplied only with such air. The air was cooled and conducted into this chamber after passing the heated region. By this state, as we have seen, the knowledge of the shape and character of the various kinds of infusoria, when studied with the microscope, had become greatly increased owing to Ehrenberg and other writers. It is therefore surprising that Schwann writes of the organisms which appeared in his infusions or were successfully kept out of them simply as infusoria. He gives no description of these infusoria, but draws a sharp line between them and the molds, minute, branching, thread-like organisms classed with the fungi, the spores or germs of which are, he says, liable to appear in infusions exposed to contamination by atmospheric dust. He makes some important observations on what he calls the well-known granules of which beer yeast consists, discovered by Leeuwenhoek 150 years earlier. He shows that they are living vegetable organisms and describes their growth and multiplication by budding. The important feature in this contribution to the subject by Schwann is that he ascribes the putrefaction of the infusions in which infusoria appear to the life and nutritional processes of the infusoria. He says they take chemical elements from the infusion of vegetable matter as nutrition, and this causes the breaking down or putrefaction of the organic chemical compound which is dissolved in the infusion. Thus, according to him, putrefaction is the immediate outcome of life and not of death, for without the presence of the living infusoria, the infusion would remain clear and unchanged for an unlimited period. And he argues that the conversion of sugar into alcohol by yeast is due in a similar manner to the life and growth of the beer yeast organism, which takes the elements which it requires from the sugar, so that the chemical combination known as sugar is broken down, and the residue forms into alcohol and carbonic acid gas. Thus, Schwann for the first time formulated the doctrine that fermentation is due to the action of living organisms, and asserted the general similarity of putrefaction to alcoholic fermentation, the former caused by unnamed infusoria, the latter by the beer yeast. This was the very reverse of the then largely prevalent chemical doctrine that putrefaction was set up by the action of atmospheric oxygen, which it was supposed gave rise to the infusoria accompanying putrescence, by abiogenesis or spontaneous generation.
Closer Study of Infusions After Schwann had briefly attributed the production of putrefaction to what he called, without discrimination, infusoria, the careful study of the infusoria concerned in that process by means of the improved microscopes of the period, 1840-60, to 60, was obviously the next step which had to be taken. It was gradually effected. Leeuwenhoek and all the describers of infusoria, including Ehrenberg, had, in searching for these microscopic forms of life, examined both a. natural infusions, such as the waters and slime of ditches, pools, and ponds, and also b. artificially prepared infusions obtained by letting dead leaves or hay, or dead animal matter, soak in jars or dishes containing water. The rich population of bell animalcules, of relatively large ciliates, swimming and creeping forms, and of rotifers, or wheel animalcules, was obtained from the naturally accumulated infusions of long-standing, in ancient ditches and pools, and to some extent also in the artificial infusions kept in vessels for many weeks under frequent examination by the microscopist. But when the occurrence of the spontaneous generation of infusoria was in question, Artificial infusions were employed, which were first purified or freed from all life by heat, then being freely exposed to contamination by atmospheric dust or contact with unsterilized objects, such as a glass rod or a man's finger. They became in the course of a few hours charged with a living multiplying cloud of the minutest organisms, and in a day or two were putrid and foul-smelling. It was observed and fully established that the larger infusoria do not appear at once in these rapidly formed growths, and have no part in causing putrefaction. These growths consist exclusively of the peculiar excessively minute rods and threads and spherical forms called vibrionia and monodyna by Ehrenberg, our bacteria. It is not until a later stage of the putrescence of a freshly made infusion attained after a period varying from a few days to a month, that the larger infusoria make their appearance. Their germs, spores, eggs, or their desiccated bodies are not nearly so abundant and ubiquitous as those of Vibrionia, bacteria. They cannot flourish in an infusion until the bacteria have established themselves and are ready, like the grass crop in a grazier's paddock, to serve as the food of the larger forms. Until the interest in the question of spontaneous generation became very pressing, no one had supposed that the various kinds of microscopic organisms arbitrarily assigned to a group as infusoria, a chaos as Linnaeus called it, made their appearance in an infusion successively as separate stages of its history, and that the earliest to appear differ from the later in the same ways as plants or vegetables differ from animals. The bacteria removed to the vegetable kingdom. It is not possible to give the credit for this observation to any one individual, but the botanists who occupy themselves with the study and systematic classification of algae and fungi, especially with the microscopic forms of filamentous waterweeds and of mildews and molds, about the years 1840 to 1860, with the general assent of biologists removed the vibrionia, the desmids, and the diatomaceae from Ehrenberg's infusoria altogether, and definitely assigned them to the vegetable kingdom. Rabenhorst, Kudzing, and Negley were the chief amongst these botanists, who, as a consequence of their very extensive study of the lowest microscopic plants, 
broke up and rearranged the old chaotic group called Infusoria. The most striking fact which they established was that the organisms which cause putrefaction, the vibrionia, or bacteria, are not animalcules at all, are not in fact animal in nature, or nutrition, as previously assumed, but are plants allied to the delicate water weeds known as oscillatory. At the same time, zoologists agreed that the rotifera cannot be associated on structural grounds with the other animalcules classed by Ehrenberg and Mueller as infusoria, but must be classed with the higher group of annulose animals. In fact, as a result of mere revision, the class infusoria, so named by O.F. Mueller and adopted by Ehrenberg, fell to pieces, resolving itself when the botanists had taken the bacteria, the desmids, and the diatoms, and the zoologists had removed the wheel animalcules into a natural assemblage of microscopic unicellular animals, to which, about 1860, von Siebold gave the name protozoa. Whilst the new conception of the nature and activity of the vibrionia was developing, and their many points of resemblance to the delicate thread-like oscillatory were being demonstrated, an epoch-making impulse was given to their investigation as agents of fermentation by the discoveries of the great French chemist Louis Pasteur and the theoretical views which he established. Pasteur found that the ammoniacal decomposition of urine is due to the growth of it in swarms of a special very simple kind of vibrion or bacterium, and further that the change of wine and beer into vinegar is due to special kinds of acidifying bacterial ferments, which multiply in it by the million. The first discovery of a disease-producing bacterium was made by the French pathologist Devane in 1854. He found that the blood of sheep suffering from the disease known as splenic fever, or anthrax, to which men and other animals are also liable, is occupied by countless swarms of a rod-like bacterial parasite, and concluded that they were the active cause of the disease. Later, 1863, Pasteur investigated this disease and proceeded to discover and study other bacterial diseases, e.g., foul cholera, silkworm disease, or pebrin, etc. Pasteur's investigations were always directed to the control of the diseases studied by him and their ultimate banishment from the life of man and his domestic animals or, on the other hand, to the control and improvement of process such as brewing, and the making of wine and of vinegar, in which living ferments, bacteria, and yeast play an important part, either helpful or injurious, to man's enterprise. The Steps Leading to Our Present Knowledge of the Bacteria We have now followed in outline the steps by which our knowledge of the bacteria entered upon its present vast practical and theoretical importance. These steps are indicated by the following epitome. 1. Invention and early use of the microscope. 2. Theory of spontaneous generation or abiogenesis. 3. Discovery of the vast world of microscopic infusoria or infusion animalcules. 4. First use of the name bacteria. 5. Experimental rejection of the theory of abiogenesis and discovery that the bacteria are the living agents of putrefaction. 6 and of many other fermentations. 7. And that many deadly diseases of men and animals are fermentations caused by intrusive bacteria. 8. That bacteria agree with certain algae or aquatic plants, the oscillatory or cyanophacy, in structure and growth and nutrition, 
and must not be classed as animals. We shall now, as briefly as the purpose of this outline necessitates, give some account of the present state of our knowledge of the bacteria. This knowledge has grown during the last sixty years, from the beginnings above sketched to an almost incredible extent, spreading out into a number of very distinct branches, pursued in great laboratories by thousands of eager, specially trained investigators, led by the ablest chemists, physiologists, hygienists, and pathologists of our time. It has received on account of the importance and novelty which characterize it a special title as a branch of science, viz. bacteriology. Forms of Bacteria The bacteria are now recognized as a group or class of very minute rod-like, spherical, or filamentous aquatic plants. They are allied to the common blue-green water plants or algae, known as the oscillatory or cyanophyceae, in their simplicity of structure and form, in much of their physiology and life history, and also in the fact that they multiply by transverse fission, whence both are called schizophyta, splitting plants. They are remarkable for their varied chemical activities, including the production of many kinds of fermentation, but do not agree in structure and life history with the yeasts and molds the agents of the fermentations in which alcohols are produced from various kinds of sugar. The name bacteria has reference to the fact that they most commonly occur as swarms of many millions of minute separate rods. Usually, each rod is only one fifty-thousandth of an inch, or half a micron in width, and one twenty-five-thousandth, or one micron in length. But often the swarms consist of individuals all uniformly seven or eight times longer, and a little broader than this. Swarms consisting of individuals uniformly of smaller size than this are frequent. These rod-like units, whether short or long, are now called bacilli. The name bacterium, which was at one time used to distinguish the shorter rods, having become generally applied as a name for the whole group. Instead of dividing into two after moderate growth and length, the bacilli of some kinds, under conditions not precisely determined, grow greatly in length, so as to form delicate straight filaments, which are called leptothrix forms, an allusion to the oscillatorian of that name. Further, such elongated growths may not be straight, but slightly serpentiform, when they are called vibrioforms. The name vibrio is that originally given to the whole group of bacteria by O. F. Mueller, but has now been restricted to these undulated forms. The same process of growth or twist carried further gives us screw-like filaments, which may be more or less open, or else closely turned spirals. These are called spirillum forms. These filamentar growths, whether straight or spiral, often show a jointing or structural division into segments corresponding to long or short bacilli, and they may eventually break up into separate pieces of that nature. In some of the spirillum forms, such a breaking up results in their separation into curved, comma-like segments. This is the case with the spirillum, which is the cause of cholera, and led its discoverer, Koch of Berlin, to call it the comma bacillus. Bacilli, vibrions, and spirilla may, but do not necessarily always, break up by transverse fission and contraction of their substance into spherical units, which are called micrococci, or coccus forms. Micrococci multiply rapidly by transverse fission and form immense growths consisting of this form only. The conditions which determine the formation of micrococci by fission of bacilli or of the filamentar bacteria are not determined. 
probably very many micrococci have become fixed or limited to the production of this form, and whilst they themselves are not constantly or regularly produced from elongate forms, they have lost the power of elongating so as to produce bacilli or filaments. They and probably many bacillar forms have all been derived from ancestral stocks which showed, as do some of their progeny, a certain freedom of growth ranging from micrococcus to leptothrix and spirillum forms. But just as the simple pullulating yeast called Saccharomyces are to be regarded as a specialized, arrested race budded from the submerged branching threads of a mold of elaborate structure and can no longer, so far as experimental research shows, grow in the larger form from which they took their rise, so many micrococci and bacilli have lost the capacity for filamentar growth and are restricted to the form of a minute sphere or a short rodlet. Nevertheless, many of the bacteria do show these and other variations in their growth, especially to those which live in open streams and ponds and have not lost their capacity for varied growth by adaptation to special conditions, such as those of parasitism. It is a matter of extreme difficulty to isolate and cultivate in a variety of conditions a particular bacterium so as to be able to say with certainty, as a result of direct observation, this form gives rise by growth to that form. In a few cases it has been done. It is even more difficult to prove a negative and to show that under no possible change of conditions does this form grow into that form. Some writers, e.g. Winogradsky, having given a form of bacterium under observation with the microscope for some weeks during which it grew and multiplied without change of form, have unreasonably put forward the conclusion that such change of form never occurs, either in this or any other bacterium, even when exposed to new conditions of nourishment and environment not tested by them. Strangely swollen and distorted enlarged bacteria are occasionally produced in unusual chemical conditions of cultivation and are called involution forms. Multiplication and Movements the rate of growth and multiplication of micrococci and bacilli is a very high one. The common bacillus, known as the hay bacillus, because it occurs in infusions of hay, has been observed to double in length and to divide every half hour. One such bacillus would thus, under favorable circumstances, produce 1,024 bacilli in five hours, over a million in ten hours, and some millions of millions in twenty-four hours. Bacilli, micrococci, and spirillum forms of bacteria are frequently found actively moving and darting through the liquid in which they form a dense swimming cloud, so-called swarming phase. They also often abandon this movement and settle down as motionless particles, resting phase. Their locomotion is due to the presence on their surface of extremely delicate threads of protoplasm, which keep up a lashing movement. Such are commonly seen on the bodies of aquatic animalcules, and on the structural units or cells of the moist surfaces of higher animals, and are called cilia. The bacteria shed their cilia when they enter upon a resting or motionless period of life. It is only in recent years, by the use of skillfully applied staining liquids and the highest powers of the microscope, that the cilia of the bacteria have become step-by-step step clearly known. They are so delicate, transparent, and minute as to be invisible unless artificially stained. They are figured as seen when strongly stained, in preparations of different kinds of bacteria. They may be single, few, or numerous, 
and may exist at one or both ends of the bacterium, or all about it. The ciliary locomotion of the bacteria is easily distinguished from the tremulous Brownian movement, which, like other minute particles suspended in liquid, e.g. gamboge resin, they sometimes exhibit. The jelly phase. A general feature of the life and growth of bacteria of a varying character is the production of a film of jelly on the surface of each little individual. This jelly may be the thinnest film and acts so as to keep the products of fission in conjunction with one another. This is particularly important in the form known as cladothrix, where a kind of false branching results from the side-slipping of the terminal part of a filament, the broken-off part being retained in position by the delicate gelatinous coat. True branching does not occur in the bacteria. Again, the jelly may form a thick transparent coat, or the jelly of neighboring units may be very abundant and fuse into a common jelly in which the jelly-forming bacteria are embedded. In that case, the jelly may be some inches in area, and even fill as a transparent coherent mass, a glass jar in which the bacteria are growing. The term zooglia is applied to these copious productions of jelly, and botanists speak of the zooglia phase of the bacteria. The term zooglia is objectionable because it implies that the jelly is of animal origin, which it is not. Gliogenous is the most suitable term to apply to bacteria which are in this phase of growth, and the jelly itself should be called cenoglia, or common jelly, of this or that kind of bacteria. Very many different kinds of bacteria, but by no means all, at one time or other in their growth produce a more or less abundant common jelly, or cenoglia. Remarkable varieties of shape and density are produced in different cases. A common form is that of a resisting membrane or skin, which forms on the top of the liquid in which the bacteria are living, or on a submerged surface. This is called a mycoderma. Ball-like, branching, and net-like forms of the cenoglia are known. Often bacteria of different kinds of chemical property become embedded in one common jelly and form a residential colony of reciprocally helpful kinds of bacteria. The ginger beer plant which includes yeast cells in its association, is an example. So are the mother of vinegar and the cumis ferment. They are symbiotic growths, similar to the lichens in their composite character. Reproduction of bacteria No process corresponding to conjugation has been observed in bacteria, nor has the production of male and female spores, though all reproduce by the simple separation of the products of fission, which resemble one another. Yet in a large number of kinds of bacteria, the formation of reproductive spores of an enduring character, called statospores, has been observed. Under given conditions of nutrition, not precisely determined, the protoplasm within a bacillus, or in a jointer segment of a filamentous leptothrix form, or spirillum form, contracts so as to form an oval, dense, highly refracting body, which acquires its own special coat. These spores have the power of resisting desiccation and high temperature to a greater extent than can the unchanged substance of a bacillus or bacillus-like segment. They are resisting spores, or statospores. It is not possible to divide the bacteria into the spore-producing and the non-spore-producing, as has been proposed, because we do not know enough about the forms which are not known to produce spores to be sure that they never do. The hay bacillus, and the bacillus which produces the disease known as anthrax, or splenic fever, 
are good examples of spore-producing bacteria and are very much alike. They both, in certain conditions, grow into long filaments, leptothrix form, in which statospores are formed in a row. It was thought by Buchner possible that the anthrax bacillus is the only hay bacillus modified by parasitism in the blood. But a decisive difference was discovered when the germinating spores were observed with the highest powers of the microscope. The new young anthrax bacillus sprouts from one end or pole of the oval spore, whilst the hay bacillus arises from the mid-region of the oval spore. Some writers apply the term spore to the swimming free bacilli and micrococci produced by the simple fission of leptothrix forms or of long bacilli. But this is a misuse of the term spore, which should refer to a bud or seed-like particle, specially modified so as to ensure its locomotion or else resistance to destructive agencies, and its growth into a new individual, and not to the ordinary abundant fission products of vegetative life. End of section 2 Recording by Marwak